The famous Chinese curse may live in interesting times. It does occasionally come to mind these days. We've lived through um, at least the start of a banking crisis. We've lived through the return of inflation. We've had the greatest money creation in the history of money creation, at least in the West, uh, through uh, COVID. We've had all sorts of panicked responses to all sorts of largely self-inflicted catastrophes uh, that haven't afflicted the West. And now we've got wars and rumours of wars on top of that. These are interesting times. Um, a lot of the problems we're seeing are related to uh, money, banking, money and credit, um, and the general economic insecurity and fragility uh, that that we're we're seeing um, and that th that threatens stability and threatens stability of societies threatens the ability of a of of a man or woman to earn a living and, and have a decent life and it's all getting very pressured in such times it's important to understand what's happening difficult times are much easier if there's if you understand the forces that are that are buffeting uh, the family and the nation. And uh, therefore we look for people who can commentate on these things and, and bring a sense of clarity to what is a very complex um, series of problems. And that brings me to our guest today. As his name is Bob Moriarty. And as we've been looking at uh, commentators on matters financial, uh, we were drawn to Bob because he's one of the most original and one of the most calmly far-sighted of the commentators we've found in this area. Uh, Bob, uh, I'm, very, I'm very pleased to welcome you to uh, the UK column today. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here and it's very nice to meet you and, and you've done a very good introduction to describing the situation we're in. And all I would add is the most important things people can do right now is to educate themselves. Uh, we are in a crisis phase, but the world has gone through this hundreds of times before. Let's start with the crisis. Um, uh, what would you characterize as, as 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 the leading aspects of this crisis that people need to be uh, need to be aware of and need to be bearing in mind as they as they make uh, decisions regarding their 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 and their families' futures? There was an excellent book written about twenty five years ago called The Fourth Turning, and the two authors of the book, Strauss and Howe, said that mankind goes through cycles of about 80 to 85 years, and there's four cycles, and we're in the fourth turning. It started about 2005, and we're in the crisis stage. And I would highly encourage anyone who's, who's concerned uh, to get the book and read it. You can get it on Amazon for a couple of bucks. And, and it's well worth reading. And what it says is during the crisis stage, there, there's a movement by governments and the elite 
to totalitarianism. And we're certainly seeing that. And there's an opposing movement uh, towards freedom. And, and I'm hoping I can contribute to that. Yes, well, there's a lot of us hoping that we can do that. And this is a good point. Um, 2005 is an interesting date because this a lot of things did start to go very, very wrong about that. We'd already had mistakes made. Um, we'd already had 9-11, for example. But um, we started to see movements develop that were attacking the very essence of what the West was, that were seeking to destroy everything we'd, we'd known and considering themselves righteous for doing it. Um, and the the freedom, the pro-freedom uh, lobby or the, the pro-freedom intellectual vanguard was quite slow, I think, in responding um, to some of these threats. But freedom does seem to be getting its defenders in ever larger numbers now. So that's that's certainly encouraging. Um, if, if we could um, turn next to... Um, uh, to some of the sort of building blocks of what has been um, the West that we all we all grew up with, um, we've got such things, the in such institutions as the dollar and the system of central banks. Um, these are areas that are uh, part of the crisis, part of the crisis in knowledge as much as anything else, um, and. Uh, if, if, could you could you perhaps take us through how you see the position first of the dollar, and sen and secondly we might expand that in, into the issue of central banking, what central banking is and does and is is doing to us. But if you could start with the dollar, how you see its position? Okay, every country that has a world reserve currency has the world's reserve currency for about 80 to 85 years. And, and that could well be in line with uh, the fourth turning. Uh, the United States gained its power after uh, World War II and the Bretton Woods Agreement. And, and essentially it meant the United States had a free ride. Europe had been destroyed and was rebuilding, the United States had 80% of the gold in the world. And, and quite bluntly, there were no limitations on what the United States could spend. So the government went into an orgy of spending on military things. We had the Korean War, we had the Vietnam War, we had the Iraq War. Uh, and what happened was when the subprime crisis, and you made a very good point that uh, when you said these, these, a lot of these issues were self-inflicted, the subprime crisis, which was very predictable, uh, created a situation in which the central banks literally poured money onto the system, and that set up the crisis that we have now, 
because interest rates went to near zero in the United States. It went below zero in Europe. So if you get something like a, a UK gilt or a US treasury 30-year note, uh, as interest rates go down, the value of the bond goes up. And the theory was that banks and hedge funds and pension funds would invest in the safest securities possible, which would be gilts and UK or US 30-year notes. So these things got to sky-high levels, and that created a situation where it was a ticking time bomb. And as soon as interest rates started going back to to reasonable, um, it created a situation like we had in the UK last fall, where the UK gilts were down 53% year over year. Now, nobody took that into account. Nobody planned on it. But you could have worked it out mathematically. It said this is what's going to happen when you raise interest rates. Interest rates have gone up at the fastest pace in world history. And actually, they're still going up. And, and the Fed's another meeting on the 12th. And in the worst case situation, they could raise rates higher. UK gilts are back in the same situation where everyone that's been holding them has been wiped out financially. The, the UK pension system blew up last fall, but every pension system in the world has tons of government bonds and, and they've been massacred. So there's, there's some tremendous losses in the banks, in the pension funds, in the hedge funds, and it's being hidden from us. But sooner or later, the, the books have to be balanced. A lot in your answer there. Um, the degree to which, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s, America had no competitors and had been handed this uh, world-leading position um, um, with, albeit having come through a war to, to, to get there, but the basically the financial collapse of British Empire and the devastation of Europe and Japan, um, Japan and Germany in particular, the isolation of Russia. There, there was no competitor. To, to give you an idea just how desperately um, uh, skint, you know, uh, out, out of resources Britain was in the late 1940s, um, there was a nationwide shortage of everything. Steel, including plasterboard, um, they were building houses because a lot of a lot of houses had been uh, wiped out by bombing. So there was a lot of homelessness. So we were building houses in sort of prefabricated fashion in Britain to uh, to give people somewhere to live. And there was a shortage of everything, including plasterboard, and there was no plasterboard to put in the walls. And uh, the walls were lined with fiberboard, which is flammable. And uh, this caused quite a few deaths due to house fires. And all of the, uh, the, the houses were then refitted with plasterboard several years later when the, when the country could afford plasterboard. But just the, the level of, of exhaustion in Britain 
And of course, it was was worse in Europe because they'd actually had the war on their own territory. Uh, put America in a unique position. And you, you, um, you highlight Korea and Vietnam and Iraq, and that's an interesting um, trio as, as the, the means to which this position was essentially squandered. Um, the, uh, the, you, you're, you're also quite right on the, the British pension industry. It's in dire straits. And, and it's doing strange things. It used to be something like 80% invested in equities, uh, in, in stocks and shares in, in Britain. And it's now something like 4%. It's a tiny amount of its resources are there. It all went into the bond market, most of it into gilts, this huge leverage bet on, uh, on interest rates staying at zero forever. And uh, they were shocked when it didn't happen. So this, uh, it, it shows, amongst other things, a lack of appreciation for where we are historically, a lack of appreciation for what's gone before, what the norm is. It's kind of almost like a touching faith in the gurus of the central banks, uh, their ability to, to, to magic money out of thin air, I suspect. Um, uh, th that takes us to central banking. Um, it, you know, could, could you summarise how you see the role of central banks today? I can't do a really good job because, frankly, I see no particular reason for central banks. If you're going to have agencies or or government departments, there ought to be something they contribute that is a good thing. Uh, we've had the Federal Reserve since 1913, and we went from a situation where we had no inflation for a 180-year period to serial bubbles, and it's something that we've done to ourselves. I'm not a fan of central banks, and, and quite bluntly, I, I wish they would all get fired. It's noticeable that um, one of the European countries has been most successful uh, coming out of um, communist rule, it's Estonia, and uh, they, they got some good advice from uh, some of the more freedom-loving people in America um, just after they set up the central bank because they thought that's what they did. And, um, and, and they, they, they reversed that and... and the full advice that you shouldn't have a central bank, and of course this is is is, is quite contrary to freedom. There's the 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 idea that you can have um, what was termed as traditional Scottish free banking system. Um, each tub has its own bottom. Each bank standing on its own reserves, and doing this with voluntary exchange and an interaction with other banks, and without the coordinating role of a central bank, which is there, amongst other things, simply to allow all the commercial banks to inflate together. So it enables the inflation, it doesn't resist it, despite what they tell us. And just before we go into other things, on the front, on the position of the dollar, you said that most, most uh, world reserve currencies uh, last about 80, 85 years, and that the dollar's time, by that reckoning, might be more or less up. Now, Whilst we don't have an obvious successor at the moment, because I'm not that convinced by the renminbi as a, as a successor to the dollar, you might comment on that, 
If we don't have an obvious successor, as we did when the dollar took over from the pound, and when the pound took over from the guilder, um, do you expect the dollar to limp on as a reserve currency simply because there's a lack of any other option? Actually, we very much do have uh, a candidate in the wings. If you go back to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, that is not a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. That is a conflict between the East and the West. The debt-based system of the West uses laws and, and practices going back to Greek and Roman times where all debts get paid. And if a debtor cannot pay its debts, he literally goes into slavery. Uh, the Russians, the Chinese, the global South is looking at the debt-based system of the West and saying it is fatally flawed, and it is fatally flawed. There's $305 trillion in debt in the world, and everybody that can count understands that debt is not going to get paid. Now, rather than discuss what do we do, okay, because somebody has to take it in the shorts, uh, it's something we just ignore. We are literally in never, never land where countries that used to be stable and conservative, like Switzerland, ha have turned their central banks into casinos, literally. Okay, uh, the, the Bank of Japan owned something like 80% or 90% of the debt of the country. Now, if you put a hundred quid note in your left pocket and you take it out and you put it in your right pocket, what have you changed? And the answer is nothing, okay? It's just in a different pocket. But the, the Swiss National Bank, it, it's fundamentally bankrupt. Japan is bankrupt. The pension funds are bankrupt. The banks are bankrupt. And everybody's pretending that, that that it's not happening. We're in this Alice in Wonderland world. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the tables. Now, I'm going to ask you a question because something has happened that's exceptionally important and everybody has missed it. According to the U.S. media, we had an agreement on the debt ceiling in the last week. So my question is, is there a debt ceiling in the United States today? Yeah, we were covering this on Monday, and the astonishing answer is no. Right? The debt ceiling's been, well, temporarily suspended. You know, like convertibility into gold was temporarily suspended in 1971. The debt ceiling's been temporarily suspended and it doesn't exist. There is no ceiling. It, is this, does this mean we're off to the races? Is there just no, no limits, no restrictions on government borrowing at all now? Exactly. And, and if that doesn't terrify you, uh, you need to wake up.
okay, that the debt ceiling by itself has been this long-standing joke, okay? Every few years, the Democrats and Republicans play this game of, of going right to the wire, and maybe we're in a default, and maybe the world's financial system will collapse. And this time they said, tell you what we'll do, guys. Talk to me in January of 2025 after the election, and whatever the debt is, then that's the ceiling. And when I read that, I went, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> that's insane. That is totally insane. And, and quite bluntly, I'm really glad that I'm old because there's so much stuff that's going on today that's totally insane. And let me give you another example. I'm going to go back to what you said of, about things being self-inflicted. I, I think it was the 24th of February of 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine. And the United States and the EU had already prepared sanctions and they put them in place. And I looked at it and I said, I don't think that's going to work. And about March 1st, I wrote an article. And I said, the U.S., the EU, and the NATO have just committed financial suicide because they were cutting themselves off from the cheapest natural resources in, in the world. And it's got even crazier. Germany participated in the decision to blow up the gas pipeline that literally poured money into the German economy. And I'm saying, why would people be so stupid? Now, there's stuff going on today. There were two UK soldiers killed in the last couple of days who had been working on those missiles that the UK just gave to Ukraine, that Ukraine is using to fire into Russia. Now, I hate to point this out, but that's an act of war, okay? You don't go into a biker bar and start insulting their girlfriends when you're armed with a penknife. And the Ukraine is armed with a penknife. Now, I'm going to ask you another trick question because you did really good the last one. What is the size of the UK army? Oh dear me! Right. Well, it the last the last figure I heard was an alleged eighty five thousand, but that's everybody and on a good day and not in not covering kind of under recruitment. So we're we're well within the hundred thousand. Um, the the sort of army that we used to hold during the Cold War is is unimaginable now in the UK because we had basically three armoured divisions based constantly in the uh, the, the um, West German plain. We had um, a very large navy with a very substantial air force and we had also troops defending Norway and other places also. Um, I think we would struggle to put more than a brigade, an armoured brigade, into combat for any length of time now. That's that's the that's the degree wh to which the British Army is uh, 
ceased to be. There comes a point where it's simply not big enough to defend itself, to put it into any theatre, and I think we're about there. I think it's a little lower than that. I think it's 72 or 73,000. And of course, you're absolutely correct. It depends on how you count it. But the real key is a a good-sized football stadium has more people in it than that. Okay, so so when when the head general uh, of the UK army is saying prepare for war, uh, I, I'm sitting here saying if I had an army of 72,000 people, I, I would actually be trying to prepare for peace. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I mean, I just checked the figures. British army, 78,000 regulars, 4,000 Gurkhas. And uh, 27,000 volunteer reserve and 4,500 others. Don't know what others means. For a, an alleged total of 114,210. That's what's currently uh, advertised. But as I say, the, the, the ability to project force and to actually sustain any sort of conflict, it's not there. It's um, not there. And, and that goes back to my analogy of like walking into a biker bar. Uh, there are times you should be very conservative, and one of the times to be very conservative is making enemy out of someone who has torpedoes that could flatten the east coast of the United States with one torpedo or, or turn the entire island of the UK in, into a swamp. Uh, the Russians have 100 megaton torpedoes. And, and when a guy is that well armed, I, I was in the military. I was actually in Vietnam for two years. I flew uh, a lot of missions. I, I'm very familiar with combat. And the Chinese weapons and the Russian weapons are absolutely terrifying. Uh, they, they, they're far more advanced than anything that we have in the West. So the West in general is a paper tiger. And and it's sitting poking the bear, and that's probably a really bad idea. Yes, and and this is this is one of the strange contrasts between apparent economic might, because Russia's economically, in terms of GDP, you know, small. It's one point eight percent of world GDP, so it's it's a bit more than half of Britain, and it's a tiny fraction of America, uh, but. What they do with that, the nature of our GDP is not the same, right? Whilst our GDP is a lot of a lot of people uh, spending their time governing one another and and pushing paper around, their GDP is making things and providing um, such natural materials as oil, gas, and food, which is more substantial when um, when you're looking at conflict. And then there's also the whole point of this this whole Russia-Ukraine um, war was promoted, was triggered by the West crossing a known red line. Um, the idea that you would have a pro-Western and, and NATO uh, member in the Ukraine including Crimea, that Sevastopol could end up being the the port for the United States' fifth fleet. Um, 
it was, was never going to be acceptable to Russia. And that was known. I mean, there were many voices speaking out that, that this is crossing a red line, the Russia will react. And the idea that uh, back in 2008, uh, NATO conferences were announcing that, that Ukrainian membership of NATO was inevitable, it was just about timing. It was just a matter of time, it was always going to go that way, and that was the only possible destination. Was basically saying to Russia, you have to surrender what you perceive as national security um, or act. I mean, it was that degree of, of backing them into a corner, um, which, which does raise the question as to why, because the decision-making all across the West, it's not just it's a paper tiger, it's a paper tiger because of 40, 50 years of chronically bad decision-making. In fact, it goes back further than that. The, um, the, the, the aircraft that you might have faced in Vietnam, um, they, were, they were based on technology gifted to Russia by the Attlee government in Britain in the late 1940s. These, all the Rolls-Royce engine technology, they handed it across to Russia for nothing. Have it. And the Russians gave it to the Chinese, and then the Chinese started using... Um, Russian jets in, in, in Korea and um, then built their own copies and um, so much of the technology that we're facing we actually originated with the West and it was handed over for very strange or flawed ideological reasoning and this is an example of just so many bad decisions stacking up to eventually, eventually it comes home to roost. Eventually, you end up in a position where the um, the 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 whole the whole position becomes untenable. Right. So the West is now without having an army to deploy, because the the position that you describe in the British military. It's not much better in France. It's significantly worse in Germany, and the rest of the European countries barely count. Europe is essentially unarmed, right? And and the Russian military, whilst it might not be what the Soviets were, is still clearly very capable and technologically very capable. And in terms of production and actually having the infrastructure still there to sustain a long war, is very capable. And yet we're prodding this. It, it is a very strange situation. Have you any insights into into either the psychology or the errors or the beliefs that are actually um, promoting this strange policy? That's too easy, okay? I, I went to Vietnam in July of 1968, and I was there until March of 1970. We were not fighting for freedom. We were taking freedom away. We had not been invited into the country. We were the ones that set up the division between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. We had supplied 90% of the weapons to the French before they were defeated at Dien Bien Phu. And at the Geneva Peace Conference, there was an agreement that within 18 months, there would be a free election uh, to determine the future of the country. Uh, the, the, if you look at an old map or an old globe, 
uh, at the DMZ, it calls it the temporary line of demarcation. And it was always designed to be a temporary line. But we were fighting for something. We were fighting for somebody. And what it was, if we were fighting for, for Grumman, and we were fighting for DuPont, and we were fighting for Link Temco Vaught, and we were fighting for McDonnell Douglas. And that's the same situation today. Now, we have this group of fools in Washington that both MacArthur and Eisenhower warned us about, the Congressional Military Industrial Complex. And they think that any war that uses up weapons is a good war because then you pour more money into their pockets. Now, I'll point something out that's so embarrassing, I'm shocked nobody else points it out. The United States just spent 20 years and $2.3 trillion fighting in Afghanistan. And what would be the occupation of the average Taliban? Well, it'd be a farmer, would you not? No. It'd be a goat herder. You know, he'll go back and raise his sheep and raise his goats. And I'll point something out that I learned as a captain of the Marine Corps. If some goat herder kicks your ass, okay, don't fight a guy that's got a hundred times more weapons. And and we've gone from getting booted out of Afghanistan to taking on, which is probably the most powerful military in the world. And and that's so irrational. I'm just absolutely shocked. But at, at its heart, it is really a conflict between the debt based system of the West and a resource based system of the East. And there will be an alternative to the dollar soon. Uh, and the BRICs are working on that right now. And I think there's something like 85 countries want to join the BRICs. So while the Western media downplays the BRICs, uh, it, it's going to be the most powerful organization in the world. Yes. I mean, the, okay, let me let me give you the, I'll give you the counter view and, and maybe you can explain why you 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 don't think this holds water. Um, the counter view is um, Brazil, part of the BRICS, not that stable in terms of currency. It's not Argentina, but not that stable. Um, China, the most economically powerful of, uh, of the BRICS, um, has a huge debt problem itself. Uh, Massive overinvestment in real estate, lots of infrastructure that they've they've built that they don't really have need for. Massive municipal debt, massive uh, commercial debt, um, and they don't have the depth and the liquidity of the American bond market, etc. Um, and that that these currencies, whilst they're based on the American model are always kind of a derivative of the American model. We'll never surpass it because they're based on it. So I guess what you're saying is 
okay, that might be true, but they're not going to be basing this on the American model. They're going to be basing it on commodities as the under, underpinning of the currency. And what we'll see emerging um, is something much stronger because it's not based on paper. I mean, is, is that your position? It is, and let me explain it in an ass-backwards way of saying it. We know the Western-based debt system doesn't work. We know that the $305 trillion in debt is never going to get paid. So at the very least, you have to say, well, we're going to go to something else. Now, I don't know what something else is. I, I, I look at gold and silver as an insurance policy against financial chaos rather than I, I don't worship gold and silver like like gold bugs do that that, that it's a solution to everything i i don't think it is a solution to everything however uh in in times of financial turmoil uh, gold has real value if you go back to the inflation in germany in 1922 and 1923 a british gold sovereign or a u.s five dollar gold piece each of which is about a quarter of an ounce of gold, would have bought you a very nice apartment in Berlin. Now, we're, we're going to go back to that. I mean, I can see you shaking your head and you understand the debt's not going to get paid. Well, if you know the debt's not going to get paid, you need to talk about alternatives. And yes, I recognize the problems of Brazil. And, and China absolutely has some financial problems ahead of it. And it absolutely is a derivative of the American system. However, those people are incredibly flexible. And when they screw something up, they don't do the same thing again. The United States screws up and then it does it again and then it does it again and then it does it again. What's the last war the United States won? Uh, that would be that would be the Second World War, would it? Nope. The Russians won World War Two. They killed ninety percent <laughs> okay. of the Germans who died in combat. Now, in the West, we're told how the United States and, and the UK and the Allies won the war. It's bullshit. The Russians won the war. And, and strange enough, last year, uh, at, at the, the uh, end of the war ceremonies, okay, Russia wasn't invited, which is very interesting. I, I'm going to state something that's so simple, everybody needs to plant it in the brains. Russia is not the enemy. Russia didn't do anything to anybody that would say they're the enemy. Likewise, China, if you're getting all your manufactured goods from a country, who gives a damn? Okay, why would you care about their financial system? It's their problem. China is not the enemy. I, I, I think that the United States and the West needs to be friends with Russia. Uh, the, the European economy, quite bluntly, the EU, I, I was absolutely correct when I predicted the EU was co committing financial suicide. There was a metal foundry in Germany that was founded in 1381 that just went out of business because of the cost of electricity. 
And, and I will say categorically in both the UK and in the EU, inflation is out of control and it's going to continue to get worse. The sanctions on Russia boomeranged a NATO. And, and it, it's insane to keep more putting more sanctions on them. Sanctions don't work. But Russia's not the enemy and China's not the enemy. And you may not like your neighbor, but if he's big and bad, you got to get along with him. And we've got uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen now standing for uh, consideration as um, President of NATO. So I'm not sure that that's a move forward because there doesn't seem to be any backing down. As you said before, we, we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over. It's the same as visible in Britain. The... Uh, destruction of our own manufacturing base, the handing away or shutting down of technological leads that we establish, and then do nothing to exploit or even defend. Um, the disinterest of the government with anything that's real and its worship of uh, the City of London. All of these are problems that we've seen over and over and over. And we've seen them play out in the same sad, predictable way since the 1960s, really. Um, so I, I take your point about Russia, and I think uh, the degree to which Russia was not the enemy was obvious to us as we were looking at the narrative before the war started, because once wars start, truth gets a bit suppressed everywhere. But before the war started, um, we were looking at the narratives coming out of uh, Russia, from Putin, etc., and what was coming out of the West. And Russia was intelligent, analytical, sensible, rational, um, and actually amazingly honest and open with what their analysis of the situation was. The West was, was, was fantasy land. I mean, there wasn't a straight idea... Uh, from from one week's end to the next, coming out of Western capitals, it was astonishing. And we're looking at this, and we're thinking, well, the Russia, the Russia that we grew up with, the Soviet Russia, which was certainly a threat, which had uh, ambitions to have a, a a world ruling philosophy, and one which was going to bring nothing but misery, suffering, uh, starvation, and 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 want to the people of the world. Um, was certainly a threat, and it was amazing to look at this and say, "Well, this this Russia is is the good guy." And our team, for all they wrap themselves in, uh, we are the very definition of freedom. We defend democracy and you know, grandma and apple pie. For all they do that, they, they don't mean any of it. They don't. They talk the talk, but they, they never walk the walk. Not anymore. Not for decades. Um, it's been quite a it's been quite a, a a sight to behold. Let's go back thirty years ago, and and the Americans went to the head of the Soviet Union and said, "Look, uh, Germany wants to reunify, and we will support the reunification of Germany." And we will pledge not to move NATO one inch to the east. Now, that is in writing, okay? It's not something I made up. It's in writing. 
There have been 14 countries admitted to NATO to the east since then, and there's going to be a 15th in the next week or so. And then if you go back to 2014, the United States spent $5 billion, which used to be a lot of money, and poured it into Ukraine. And Ukraine, quite bluntly, is run by a bunch of actual Nazis. They're not pretend Nazis. They're real Nazis. And uh, they attacked the eastern provinces who didn't want to be part of the coup d'etat that the United States initiated, and I think there were 16,000 people killed between 2014 and today. Uh, And in 2016, uh, at the Minsk II agreement, uh, Kiev agreed that there would be free elections in the eastern provinces and they would stop shelling the eastern provinces. And and everybody admits now, the UK admits, France admits, Germany admits that they had no intention of actually honoring Minsk too. Now, if the United States didn't lie 30 years ago, and they did lie, and if Ukraine didn't lie in 2016, that's seven years ago, there wouldn't be a war. The The head of the CIA today was the ambassador to Russia. And he said, that is a red line. And if you bring Ukraine into NATO, there will be a war. Now, now how much more direct can you get? Dozens of people said the same thing. The key... I- here is if you listen to Putin, if you listen to Lavrov, if you actually watch what the Chinese are doing politically, geopolitically, they got the Saudis and the Iranians to sit down and work things out together. Now, isn't that what a secretary of state should do? If you want to see NATO as a force what you really need to do is you need to go to Tripoli to the market and and you can buy your own slave. And I've always thought it's a great idea, frankly. I, I'd, I'd just love to have a slave. I got a dog and unfortunately the dog makes me do all the work. But, but you go to Tripoli, you can buy a slave and that's what Libya brought to the best run country in Africa, now I I didn't like Gaddafi, I I don't like Putin, I don't like Lavrov, but I don't have to like them. I just have to get along with them. And listening to Lavrov and listening to Putin, they are rational people. And in December of 2021, Putin said, "Look, guys, we want an absolute guarantee. We want you to do what you said you were going to do." And the United States totally ignored him. And I'll be candid. If you look at the Secretary of State, if you look at the the Secretary of Defense, if you look at the head of the U.S. Armed Forces, these people are mental midgets. This is the quality of leadership we have today. And we're being the world has been led into World War III by a group of fools. As well as the eastward expansion of um, 
of NATO. We also had the eastward expansion of the EU, and sometimes it's a little tricky to spot just where one stops and the other one starts. Um, and uh, we've got the Eastern Partnership, the EU Eastern Partnership areas, which are which are essential areas that they're working with and they're looking to short, medium or long term to make part of the EU, part of the West, if you will. And that's, that's an interesting list because Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Moldova and the Ukraine. In other words, everything to the immediate West, the immediate South of Russia. And this is another thing that simply made it quite clear to the Russians that they were not invited to the party, uh, but they were being um, surrounded, encroached upon. And um, there was only one direction of travel, and that was marching east. If we could go on from one situation to perhaps an even crazier one, which is Taiwan, and the kind of saber-rattling noises we're getting from Washington about the... Some people are saying inevitability of uh, of a war over Taiwan between the United States and China. And as I was pointing out on on, uh, uh, on UK call just on Monday there, um, Ukraine and Russia's 2% of world GDP, America and China's 33% of world GDP. So it's a whole different order of magnitude in terms of the resources and the economic uh, disruption that would that would come from it. Um, so, on that, I mean, do do you see something similar happening there? Is the is the prodding of China going to be such that it, it will do something extremely unwise, or are they simply too smart to fall for that and and not really being forced into it because Taiwan's an existing situation and it's not really a, a red line. In other words, do you think that the hawks in America will get their war? I don't think so. And, and, and uh, I'll tell you why. Both the Russians and the Chinese said, according to the Iranians they announced today, they now have hypersonic missiles. And I, I believe that in... A, a real conflict between uh, the United States and Russia or the United States and China in the first 30 minutes of the war, there would be 13 American aircraft carriers floating uh, belly side down. Uh, they have weapons that we just cannot counter. Now, it, here's what, here's how insane the United States plans are. Do you have any idea of what the uh, Defense Department would do if the Chinese invaded Taiwan and it looked like they were going to capture the country? Do you have any idea what the Americans would do to the chip factories? No. No, I don't know the answer to that one. They would blow them up. Uh, we, we, we're good to, we, yeah. we're defending Taiwan by planning to blow up Taiwanese assets. Yeah, exactly. The same way we did with Germany. I mean, Jesus Christ, who do you think blew up Nord Stream? I, I can prove the United States did it with simple logic. How many pipelines were there? Uh, was it four? Okay. How many of them got blown up? Three. Okay. 
Only the United States military can attack the biggest act of terrorism in world history and screw it up. <laughs> you make a strong point. We go in and we blow up the entire Taiwan chip manufacturing business. What happens to the world economy? A lot of it stops. It stops. It stops making cars for a start. I mean, we are so unstable right now that the mere idea of saying, hey, i got an idea. Why don't we blow up half the chip-making plants in the world? Uh, uh, excuse me? Or, or, why don't you come back and let's talk about this when you sober up? Uh, here's the deal, okay? And this is unpleasant. It is something Americans don't want to hear. Taiwan is part of China. It is a part of China legally. It is part of China officially. And it is run as a separate government, the same way that Hong Kong used to be. Sooner or later, the Taiwanese are going to say, wait a minute. We, we don't want the same thing done to us that the Americans NATO did to Ukraine. Why don't we sit down and work with the Chinese and and figure out what we can do that's mutually beneficial. Uh, if you want peace in the world, you figure out how to get people together who have different interests that are sometimes conflicting. There is a conflict, but China is not the enemy of the world, and, and Taiwan is actually and legally part of China. And I would like to see peace between China and Taiwan. But the idea that the United States can defend Taiwan is simply ludicrous. So against the background of all of this instability that we've, we've, we've been discussing here, um, the, what do you, how do you suggest that an individual um, or an individual family um, might view the problems that it faces and might try to, you talked about an gold as an insurance policy, might try and protect themselves to such extent that they can um, against uh, the instability becoming suddenly much, much worse. Okay, that is a brilliant question. And the analogy that I would like to use is, let's go back to 1929. The, the world's economy was unstable, okay? And the leading financial people in the world, like Bernard Baruch and Joseph Kennedy, knew problems were on the horizon. What could the average guy in the street do in 1929 to protect himself? Um, well, I suppose uh, you, you would get out of paper, wouldn't you? You would get out of paper no. and get into real assets? No, no. It, who, who's telling him there's problems mm -hmm. coming? Nobody. You know, Nobody, he, he yeah. reads the newspaper, okay? There is no narrative that supports his, his future, period. Okay, he's stuck. Now, if you go to today... We have access to more information today than any society in history 
by probably 10 orders of magnitude. The very best thing that anybody can do today is to educate themselves. And that doesn't mean listening to the people that that agree with you. It means listening to the people you don't agree with. Uh, I love listening to Putin and Lavrov because they're clear, they're simple, and they've got a point. I don't have to agree with them. And, And likewise, if you educate yourself today, we've got a hurricane coming, but hurricanes come all the time. If you're prepared for the hurricane, you'll be just fine. Final question uh, for you today, Bob. I was reading that you, during your time as a naval aviator with the Marines, flew your plane underneath the Eiffel Tower, through the arch of the Eiffel Tower. Is that true? (laughs) Uh, The answer to that is yes and no. Uh, I, I was in the Marine Corps from 1964 to 1970, and in 1984, uh, I, I was in Paris in an air race, and I, I took a left when I should have taken a right, and I looked up, and there was the Eiffel Tower. And if you go to YouTube, you can find a video. One of the things that I learned when I was 18 years old going through boot camp in the Marine Corps in San Diego was uh, my DI got the entire platoon out, and he said, okay, it's very important. Listen up. If you ever do anything really, really stupid, make sure you take pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bob, thank you. I think we'll leave it there. Bob, that was tremendous. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Till next time, and there'll be a next time. Uh, Thank you very much.